This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. There's a lot of information out there publicly available that really you can derive uh, signals from. If there's disease outbreak coming, sometimes there are signals out there in whether it's restaurant reservation cancellations or even looking at the number of people that are driving into pharmacies. You can learn things in advance that you know that there's a problem to deal with. A lot of discussion about China's effort to dominate high-tech industries. They have assessed their own capabilities and looked at where others are in the world and made a decision that they need to invest more. For us, it's a challenge because we have not indicated that we're going to be making the same sorts of investments. And so we're sort of losing some of the talent that I think otherwise would have stayed in the U.S. Dr. Stacy Dixon is the deputy director of IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. Prior to her current assignment, Dr. Dixon oversaw research and development at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. She also worked at the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and at the Central Intelligence Agency, where she was assigned to the National Reconnaissance Office Advanced Systems and Technology Directorate. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Dixon to talk about the growing importance of technology to the intelligence community and the work IARPA is doing to leverage technology to help the IC defend the nation. We'll be right back with our discussion with Dr. Dixon after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Stacy, welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Mike. It's grateful to be here. So, Stacy, young people, undergraduates, graduate students, young professionals account for a significant share of our listeners, and they love to hear about the career trajectory of our guests, right, because they think about themselves and how they would get to a place in life. So I'd love to start with two questions about your career. How did you end up in the IC? How did you end up at CIA? How did that happen? That's a great question. So even though I grew up here in Washington, D.C., the idea of actually working in the intelligence community was not on my radar for most of that time. 
I love science and engineering, and that's about all I knew for sure. So I figured it would be a degree in science or engineering, and I ended up majoring in engineering. But um, where did you go to school? Oh, Stanford University, Stanford. and then Georgia Tech for graduate school. And both of those degrees, the degrees that I got there, are very applicable to a number of fields. So it's really easy for engineers to get lured out of engineering. But I tried, I keep trying in my career to stay in engineering jobs or science jobs. So when I went away for uh, grad school and then went to a, a postdoc at the University of Minnesota, I was looking for actually opportunities to work in biomedical engineering, which is what I had been specializing in. And I ended up finishing during the recession of 2002, when it was a little harder to find jobs. And one of the organizations that continued to hire during recessions is the government. So the idea of coming back home, coming back to D.C. to try something out was very attractive. The person that I had met that talked about the intelligence community couldn't tell me a thing about what they were doing, but was so excited and so passionate about the work that it was sort of a no-brainer to go ahead and at least put my hat in the ring. And that started it all after waiting to hear back if I got the job. Next thing I know, I was in the community. So it was a bit of a, a stumble into it, but I'm so glad I did. So you were hired by CIA. Correct. But you were working in a place called the National Reconnaissance Office. Exactly. Could you tell people what that is? Sure. The National Reconnaissance Office builds satellites. So they build whether it's the kind that look at things or the kind that listen to things. They're the satellites that the intelligence community and the Department of Defense use to basically keep the country safe. And then the second question, second career question is, how did you go from your entry-level job at CIA and the NRO to where you are now? That is also an interesting career path. So I go into jobs not with an expectation of exactly what's going to happen next. But I'm always open to whatever opportunities are there. During the time after I was working at the NRO, this opportunity came about to apply for uh, a job on the Hill. And I think it was because my mom had worked on the Hill briefly back when I was in high school that there was a bug planted. And I wanted to know what it was like to work up there, what it was like to be in the presence of people that are making the laws of the country. And so I went up into the Hill and worked on the House Intelligence Committee for three and a half years. That allowed me to be lured back to lead the Legislative Affairs Organization. What did, what did oh, you sure. learn? What did you learn oh, wow. working on HIPSI, right? I mean, yes. That's, yeah. Well, first, there's some fantastic staffers and members of Congress that are doing the job of intelligence on the Hill. Um, what I learned is even those people who I did not politically agree with, I learned that the motivations were really coming from a good place. And, you know, we might completely disagree on the why, but knowing that the end goal was to keep the country safe, to make the country a better place. And knowing that did help me, I think, even in this time in sort of political turbulence, to appreciate the fact that it's not necessarily someone who wants to do something bad for the country. They really do want to do good things. And even though there's a lot of disagreement, the end goal was the same. Did you get a different perspective of the intelligence community? Oh, what absolutely. you had going, going into that job? I did. So working for a single agency, you get, you're very ingrained into what that agency does. So it was all satellites all the time. But going to a job where you're looking across the entire community, you can see sort of the, the, the good and the bad. You can see the, the larger investments across the span. And I was looking at investments in things that you would buy, te- technical things that you could buy, technical capabilities across the entire community. So I got a very good sense of you know, where, there were, where there was partnerships, where there could be better partnerships, uh, the types of things we were buying, the, uh, the way that acquisitions took place, the challenge with acquiring things within government. Learned a lot about 
intelligence writ large across all of the agencies. And there's 17 elements in the intelligence community. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to do things in different ways. So you went from HIPSI and then back to the intelligence community in a legislative affairs job. Correct. Although I don't consider myself out of it, having still worked on HIPSI, but I did come back to the executive branch. Right. And I did lead legislative affairs for National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. What do they do for our for our listeners? So NGA is it's easier call it that. NGA is basically the organization that tries to understand the world. They are doing that by analyzing satellite and overhead imagery to understand countries, movements, where things are happening, focused overseas, but they also have a domestic mission to help out in the case of natural disasters. So it's a great organization to sort of be one of the first that you're working in within the organ- within the community. So the, the one of the ways people can understand them is their predecessors were the ones to identify the Soviet missiles in Cuba. Correct. Right? That's that's the kind of work that they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then within NGA, you eventually got back to a technology job. I did. One of the things that I talked about with the director who invited me to come in, Tish Long, was that while I enjoyed legislative affairs and I thought it was one of a great opportunity to use the skills that I talked taken from the Hill, my heart was with science and technology. So if I could find my way back into an engineering or research job, that was my preference. And a couple of years later, uh, there was an opportunity that opened up and a backfill that came through for legislative affairs. And I was able to move into what they called Innovation, which was the research directorate. Okay. I ARPA. Oh, it's, yes. been, it's been described as the DARPA for spies. Um, I saw somewhere. What does that mean? What does IARPA do? What does DARPA do? What does IARPA do? So we're both the sort of more basic and applied research arms for our respective organizations. So for DARPA, it's for the entire Department of Defense. For IARPA, it's for the intelligence community. And we take on the risk and try to develop capabilities that will help the different agencies achieve their missions. But we're willing to take on more risk than they can because we have no operational mission. Our goal is our job is really to invest in research. We call it high payoff, high reward research. So things that would probably take three to five, five to 10 years to develop, where if you've got an operational mission, you're going to have, you're going to be hard pressed to put aside money. And that's where your focus is going to be, right? Right. Exactly. So we can do that for them. And our partners are the elements of the intelligence community. So we don't start a research program without having someone in mind or multiple agencies in mind who could be our transition partners. But we're able to take on whether it's for the, the, the signals intelligence mission, the geospatial intelligence mission, other types of collections, we're taking on those technical challenges that they would have otherwise have a hard time investing in. And there's an organization called InQtel. Correct. Could you tell people what that is and then could you describe how you're different from that? Absolutely. So InQtel is the strategic investment arm that was created by CIA and their goal is to look at technologies that are really closer to commercialization. So probably within six months to to maybe 18 months, two years, probably at longest, that you can bring them into the community pretty quickly. Whereas we are looking for those things where even the idea, the possible maybe demonstration of it is going to take three to five years to develop. So there's a great partnership between the two of us because sometimes we learn of companies that might want to participate in our research through them and they can learn of uh, commercialization opportunities. Universities, for example, who work with us oftentimes have products that come out and then they want to start a company. So that may be a future something that InQtel could invest in, but it's a great partnership that sort of covers the near near-term commercialization of technology to the longer-term creation of it. So the whole concept of IARPA is that technology really matters to the future success of the intelligence community. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
It really does. And and we do invest in things that aren't necessarily technology as well. I mean, we're looking at also how do you improve analysis? How do you improve reasoning? How do you improve the ability to learn, learn lessons? But most of our programs do invest in some sort of technology. And sometimes it's literally creating a new device that does something um, that wasn't we weren't able to do before, making something that's more sensitive. Sometimes it's really applying knowledge and data in a way that just hasn't been applied before to allow us to learn something in advance of when we might have learned it. So it's better to talk about technology and innovation. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Absolutely. So it's a great transition. You have four areas of focus I learned from your website, um, which is a great website, by the way. You call them research thrusts. Thrust. I would love to get you to say a few words about each of them, including why it's so important to the future of the IC and what you're trying to accomplish in each one. So the first is analysis. Analysis, correct. So making better use of the data that's available, helping people, whether helping them reason more, uh, more thoughtfully, learn lessons more appropriately, or even just how do you take this data and analyze it in a different way so you can come out with different knowledge out of the other end. We deal with a lot of data in there, like whether it's from imagery or whether it's language. There's a number of different things that fall under the analysis discipline, but it really is how do you make better decisions? How do you learn more from the data that's available out there? The second, which is fascinating one to me, is anticipatory intelligence. When we talk about anticipatory intelligence, we're mainly talking about forecasting. How do you enable yourselves to predict things that are going to happen such that you can give the information to decision makers a lot earlier, that they can be prepared to deal with what's going to be coming. What we've learned from the forecasting uh, programs is, A, there's a lot of information out there publicly available that really you can derive uh, signals from, that you can learn things that may be happening. There's a lot of conversations, whether it's in social media or something else, publicly available social media, Mm -hmm. where uh, people are talking about things. And so you may have a sense that there's going to be some sort of civil unrest or there is some sort of uh, economic issue coming. If there's disease outbreak coming, sometimes there are signals out there in whether it's restaurant reservation cancellations or even looking at the number of people that are driving into pharmacies. You can learn things in advance that you know that there's a problem to deal with. We take the forecasting all the way to geopolitical events, so allowing people all over the world to to try to predict who's going to win foreign elections, uh, whether uh, other countries are going to do things like launch missiles, and it's just really an interesting way. And the, the most recent one that we've started looking is looking at cyber attacks. So how do you forecast that someone is going to be attacked through cyber means? How do you know in advance so that they can protect themselves more thoroughly than we've been able to to date? Yeah, I guess in, in this one, there's there's both the problem of false positives and false negatives, right? Absolutely. And, and how do you minimize those? Correct. Right? Because if you're, if you're chasing down things that really aren't going to happen all the time, then it's not a very good tool. Right. So how do you balance the sensitivity of the tool with not over-predicting things that are going to happen such that no one really believes the predictions? Is there an issue here in, because I grew up as an analyst, as you know, is there an issue here in the culture of analysts in the community and their acceptance of these things? right, uh, these tools, if they can't touch and feel the reasoning of how they got there, they're going to be a little less perhaps accepting of it? So I think that last one is true for most people. And not understanding how something came up with an answer is a very uncomfortable place to be right. in, whether for an analyst or anyone else. And so part of what we're also trying to do is some research into how did the decision get made, making sure that there is sort of a paper trail or an audit trail so you can go back and say, okay, it was these signals that led us to, to predict that this thing was going to happen. I think that will help the analyst population and others in general accept what we're doing. So, yes, you're right. You're definitely right about that. And sometimes just using tools that, at least in the beginning, take more time. 
it's difficult for anyone. Right. They've got a lot of work to do, right. and learning a new tool that may or may not be successful is kind of difficult. But we've seen a lot of success bringing our tools into the community, and I think the value of the tool proves itself, and then you win people over that way. Collection is the third. Yes. So collection's all about just the signals themselves. How do you go about um, actually whether it's getting getting information from an area that you couldn't collect from before or the, the sensor itself that is going to be doing the collecting. So it's a little bit of a broader uh, mission space in that particular thrust. We look at synthetic biology. So what are some of those biological sensors that are going to enable us to know that someone's engineering something, some biology? So what are the signals that are going to let so- us know that someone has been handling narcotics or handling uh, explosives? Things like that that really would be useful from a monitoring monitoring perspective. How do you create better sensors with more sensitivity than we have now? And we tend to do things where we're not going for the incremental improvement. We're really trying to do an entirely different way of collecting the data and challenge people to do much more sensitive and much farther distances away that you can actually know that something is happening. And then the fourth is computing. Yes. Computing is a pretty broad for us. Uh, it's everything from microelectronic security. So how do you take advantage of the fact that most of the integrated circuits, so those chips that are in all of our devices, are most of them are, are created overseas? How do you make that a more secure process? On the side of their software security, how do you know if someone's implanting bugs or malware in your software? To the how do we just make faster computers? So focused on high-performance computing. So whether that's quantum computing, cryocomputing, or neuromorphic computing, which is sort of more mimicking the way that the brain operates. Those are all things that we're investing in because we know that the traditional classical methods that we're using for computing aren't going to last forever and aren't going to always get faster. And we want to be able to do things to keep up with all the data that's going to be out there. So our computing investments are are taking us in all those directions. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So, Stacy, on your website, you list a number of your current research projects. I assume there's others that aren't on there. But let me ask you about a couple of them that are. Because it's a long list, and it's fascinating, actually. One that caught my attention was called Better. Yes. Better is one of our newest programs. In fact, we are still working to get the broad agency announcement out, so I can go ahead and talk about it. It's literally trying to – the goal is an analyst has a lot of data and documents that are coming through. And they have a particular thing that they're interested in. But right now, the ability to go and automatically look through all those documents is just not, it's not there to the extent that we would need it to be, to really be able to trust it. So better is trying to do better extraction and then picking of other documents that are related so that the person who is doing the analysis can really have a set of documents to prove from that they're pretty confident are going to be relevant to the particular topic. And we're very excited about that. Uh, the program manager that came through has got a lot of experience in doing that such so just exact thing. Cause, which we've mentioned a little bit, it's just about the cyber attack Correct. forecasting. Correct. Cause. So, so cause has, has two approaches. One, it's trying to figure out, are there other, we'll call them sensors out there. And sensors can be either physical sensors or they can be literally things that are happening, whether it's happening out in the dark web or something that's happening in social media, sentiment analysis. 
how do you better have a sense that someone's going to use some malware? And how do you have a sense of which industry or which entity even is going to be the victim of a possible cyber attack? So there's a lot of conversations that happen. There's individuals who go sort of scouting before they do cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. Can we see these things happening before the actual attack so that we can prevent as opposed to sort of forensically going back and trying to figure out what happened after the fact? And then an, an, another one that caught my attention was focus, which includes counterfactual, counterfactual. reasoning. Absolutely. And as an analyst, that would yeah. be very attractive to you. Yes. So the, the goal behind focus was to figure out, are we learning the lessons that we need to be learning when we have, and I'll say intelligence failures, but I'll say more broadly, when we just, when there's a different lesson that should have been learned or a different analytic conclusion that may have been possible. How do we go back and learn the lesson from that particular thing? And so with the counterfactuals, we're trying to you pose hypotheses as to different outcomes that could have been the possibility and try to figure out what would have led to a particular outcome. The goal there is really lesson learned analysis. We believe right now that there isn't a lot of scientific research that shows how we learn lessons from uh, analysis that we've done. And we're trying to put some scientific rigor behind that process. So when you go to your website and, and there, there's all of this detail, right? probably more detail on your website about what you do than than the rest of the intelligence community. Why do you do that? Well, we know that the best brains are not all in the intelligence community. We have great brains in there, but really to be able to solve the problems, we need more people involved. And by getting academia and industry, especially industry who doesn't typically work with government, allows us to have those brains really working on the challenges we need them to work on. We also have a great research technology protection program, which allows us from the beginning to assess what is the classification that's needed for this particular research. And then we continue to monitor that as the development occurs. But we're very confident about the things that we put on the website, that they are unclassified and that we can have people who are outside the community who have no clearances working on them. And our research has been better because of that. And so people see those and they believe they have some expertise to bring to the table and they reach out to you? Correct. They reach out to us. Uh, there's a couple of different ways. One is to when you see a program, for example, like Better, Better will have a broad agency announcement that goes out. These are the larger programs that we do. There will be prior to that an industry day or proposers day where individuals who are interested can come in and hear from the program manager and hear about doing work with IARPA. They seem to be situations where academia and industry par partner together to form a team that then proposes. And so for the single individual to come and propose is probably not going to be successful, but the teams of individuals you get your, sort of your name out there that you're interested in teaming. And then if you've got the skill sets that another organization needs, you can come together. The other thing that people can look for are seedlings, which are, um, this is sort of at the proposers, their, their selection. So if you have an idea, something that you're not quite sure is going to work, but you think with just a little bit of funding, it'll take you to the point where you know whether you've been able to achieve something. Um, those are the types of things we're looking to fund with seedlings. And that I would recommend, yes, you reach out to the program manager in that particular discipline and all their names and their, their areas of expertise are on our website also. And they can help let you know if that's something we'd be interested in funding. It also seems that you bring people in to be program managers. We do, correct. Uh, and that's, uh, that's also, we got that from the DARPA model. Essentially, our program managers are there for three to five years. Some come from inside the community from intelligence agencies, but many come from industry or academia and they come in for that short period of time to launch a couple of programs, and then they go back out and continue their career. But it's a great opportunity to understand what it's like to work within government, to develop some great contacts within the intelligence community and learn really directly what the missions require, what the challenges are, and then be able to take that knowledge elsewhere. But we've, it's a great model because you don't get locked into any right. particular investment. Right. Everyone comes in with different ideas, and so it's always refreshing the ideas. And then how do you measure your success? 
We have started going back and we've been around for about 10 years. And so we're still a very young organization, but we're able to go back and look at the, the uh, agencies who've received our capabilities and ask them whether they've been using them. And to our great pleasure, we've actually been able to track down success stories that they have shared with us. Operationally, they've put our capabilities or tools into practice and then been able to do something really exciting. And unfortunately, there's not much I can talk about here, but uh, just it's been really rewarding for the program managers and for our organization to see the impact that we've had in the community on very, very high profile things. And how much interest is there both at the senior leadership level of the community and then on the Hill in terms of what you guys are doing? We have a great relationship with both. We've had wonderful support from within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, under which IARPA falls. I think a lot of agencies' leadership are starting to know more about us as the individuals in their workforce reach out and talk about the capabilities, and then they, we try to transition them in, which is sort of a process in and of itself. On the Hill, we've got a great relationship as well. I mean, they've kept us very consistent in our budget. We brief them periodically. We provide uh, written updates as to what we're doing. And I think there's a lot of trust in the organization because of the successes that we've been able to demonstrate. I'm talking about trust. I was at CIA. I was the deputy director when the Snowden revelations happened, right? Um, And it really undermined the trust between the intelligence community and the private sector. And the private sector is, is really important to you. Did you guys go through a tough period with regard to that? Did it not matter that much? And kind of where are you today in terms of that relationship? I was pleasantly surprised that the individuals who have chosen to work with us did not hold that against us. And I would say we're still continuing to get new players involved, new companies, new uh, academic institutions who learn about us and want to be involved in the research. And I think part of that is because the research itself is just so interesting and the challenges that we put forth really do push. They push the discipline, they push the fields, and they're able to do things that Otherwise, no one would be asking them to do. Mm -hmm. So I think because of that, because the fact that we do try to be as transparent as possible, we encourage publications, we want them to get their information out, which is very important, especially in academia, that uh, the trust has been there. And even though that really had the, could have had a very negative impact on our ability to work with these different companies and and schools, uh, we have not seen that be the case. Do you work with non-U.S. companies and non-U.S. citizens? We do, actually. The other thing about the the best and brightest brains is they may not all be in your country. And we have a number of programs that do have international partners, mainly in academia. I would say I think we've got on the order of 20 different countries that we funded one way or the other. Uh, The other way that sometimes foreign countries get involved is with our prize challenges, which are these very small couple-of-month efforts where we put out a data set, We put out a challenge, like how do you come up with an algorithm that's going to either have the most accuracy or the most speed, and anyone in the world can compete on these challenges. And then if they win, if they're the best product, whatever that happens to be, they get a check from the government. So uh, it's it's a very attractive for not only people in this country, but people outside. Um, So let me take you maybe a little bit outside your comfort zone, but, you know, the same area at the end of the day. There's a lot of discussion about China's effort to dominate high-tech industries particularly those with a you know, national security bent to them. How do you think about what they're doing, where they are relative to the United States, and what that may look like going forward? How do you think about that? I think it's interesting. I believe that they have assessed their own capabilities and looked at where others are in the world and made a decision that they need to invest more. And the numbers that they're talking about, we're talking, you know, billion-dollar investments uh, at a minimum in the artificial intelligence arena as well as in the uh, synthetic biology, DNA arenas. And it's scary because those are large investments that can really shift what research is accomplished. 
It's very attractive to people who had traditionally been working in the U.S., even United States researchers, when they're offered labs and research dollars to not go overseas and take advantage of this. So I think that for them, it's going to be a great opportunity to really increase their standing in those areas. For us, it's a challenge because we have not indicated that we're going to be making the same sorts of investments. And so we're sort of losing some of the talent that I think otherwise would have stayed in the U.S. What are our advantages in this competition, for want of a better word? One of the reasons our researchers are so attractive to others is because of just the innovative thinking, the way that we conceive of programs, the way that we come up with ideas and then sort of execute them. Uh, We still have a lot of great people in this country who are really interested in pushing the envelope and pushing the limit and trying things that are not traditionally the approaches that everyone else would take. And I think it's that thinking and that process that really does give us an advantage. Um, We definitely need to continue to encourage students of every background to enter science and engineering because those are the places where these investments are going to really make a difference. And it's one thing if we had the money and don't have the people, that's going to put us in an awkward position as well. So uh, right now, it's, it's the people that we're training, the ideas that we're coming up with, really this ability to think, and I'll say outside the box or as if there were no boxes. So you mentioned China and artificial intelligence. How important is that particular area? It's extremely important. One of the things that if you look across our research portfolio, many of the things that we're able to achieve is because we're inviting machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence application. Um, We're putting it into these research programs, which is allowing us to automate things a lot faster, be able to discern very sensitive things within, whether it's a data set, whether it's imagery, whether it's language, whether it's some sort of other signal. These tools really... They do compete extremely well with the way that we think about things. You want to be able to even think and process faster than maybe the average, the human brain can think because the amount of data that's being put in front of people right now, it's more than people can can take in. But the machines can continue to look at a lot of data and, and, and integrate a lot of that information. So for us, these investments in machine learning are really important. And I think you'll continue to see that for with the country, especially as we move towards automated whatever. You're going to need algorithms that you trust, algorithms that you understand, and ones that you can, can sort of let run and not really have concerns about. Stacy, you've been um, been incredibly generous with your time. Let me ask you one more question. DARPA's roots date back to the surprise launch of Sputnik in 1957, and IARPA is modeled after DARPA, as you talked about. Is there a potential for another Sputnik kind of surprise out there Is there something that could happen tomorrow that you would say that wouldn't surprise you, right? That it might surprise you, but the fact that there's a surprise wouldn't surprise you. Is that a possibility? So I would say there continue to be surprises. If you look back a couple years ago to the CRISPR phenomenon, Mm -hmm. which was sort of the uh, basically helping with genetic engineering, helping with the engineering biology, that was maybe not a surprise for those individuals who had been working on it for years and years, but the speed at which we were able to do things to engineer biology, to cut and change DNA, was a surprise to many people. Um, It didn't come from another country. I mean, there were partners around the world, but the technology itself had been something that we were part of developing. So I think I see more of that. I see the opportunity of within research labs, surprises coming out, the ability to do things faster than we thought, because there had been sort of an evolutionary improvement. That was revolutionary. That allowed us to do things that uh, just a couple years before that could not be done. I'm not so concerned that there's another country that's going to come out with a thing. It'll be a a research lab, which may or may not be in another country. So I I expect surprises in the future. I can't necessarily predict exactly where they're all going to be. But as we apply knowledge in different ways, 
it's inevitable. Stacey, thank you for taking the time to chat with us and best of luck going forward in your extraordinarily important work. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. IARPA appreciates it and it's been a great conversation. Thank you. That was Dr. Stacy Dixon. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.